This is Keywords and I'm Zoe Cummins. Tonight, more self-recorded audio and new writing. This week, prompted by our future selves. Where and how we see ourselves. Sliding doors moments. The delight of imagining. You'll hear work by Assembly Audio, Belinda McGowan, Bridget O'Dee, Ivan Aiken and Jennifer Redmond, Viviana Fiorentino, Nula Roach and Jodie O'Neill. In our first piece by Assembly Audio, the producer Jay hopes to preserve the memories of those they love through audio snippets for future reference. The voice featured in this recording is Ashling O'Neill. Yes. Please? Yes, I got it. Heavy, huh? Heavy. I press record and capture a moment in time. These moments have a practical use for me. I record them, I get to know them, and I try to shape them into something new. Hopefully something beautiful. Along you. There are other reasons I record these moments. Sometimes I'm trying to preserve a memory, a small act of rebellion against the passing of time, which distorts and dilutes. What was it like? Um, I don't really remember. This memory I pass forward as a favor to my future self. The playwright Harold Pinter said, "There are some things one remembers even though they may never have happened." Like an overplayed film reel, memories fade. They become distorted versions of our then reality, clinging to the corner of the mind. Why do we remember some and not others? Why do some embed themselves, curl up there, waiting? What part of the brain deemed one memory worthy of remembering and not another? You see, when you're young and you lose someone, all you have are memories. Usually they come as an old photograph. Like these are all just songs. Um... You bend and twist the image trying to put some space on it to get some sense of how the room felt, how it sounded or smelled. Sometimes they come as a story, a fading tale of how they loved technology, how they valued education or how they were a gentleman. I welcome both, of course, but wonder how we lost the person's voice along the way. What is it like? How did they sound when they were angry or happy? I think. Could they sing? What did their laugh sound like? I they get never it. You can spend your life recording these moments and still not capture the one sound you want the most. Lost in the ether. Nothing more than a memory now and the gentlest of vibrations bouncing around the walls of the wide world. And time moves very fast when I'm doing it. The memories which stand out in my mind all wear with the passing of time. Some brighten as the other dullen. When this happens, I press record and capture a moment in time. Moments in time are also captured in our next piece through a series of subtle smiles. Bridget O'Dee tracks a relationship and as two people get to know each other, the smile indicates intimacy and understanding. It reveals more than words and becomes a reassurance for the future. I know that smile. 
is the one that lives in the wet of your eyes, like the sun on a pond on a glossy November day. I see it prance in your eyes and rise like a hint in your cheeks. It peeks beneath the furrowed brow that descends when you try to hide that secret smile. I know that smile is the one that says we had sex last night for the first time and I'm at the traffic lights waiting for the little man to turn green and I'm so tired I can barely see. And you've sent me a text and I stand there, staring, smiling. I miss the green man and I keep standing there, staring, smiling. Until I reply, I can't wait to do it again. And I know that we'll do it again. I know that smile is the one that says, you've told me this already and you're still in the wrong, but you're so defiantly stubborn that this would never cross your mind. And I laughed last time and you became annoyed And I only laughed because it is these glorious inconsistencies that make you, you. So hold my mouth shut this time, I nod along and agree with you. But I feel it, the laughter rising in my eyes, and I cannot contain that secret smile. I know that smile is the one that appears when your niece tells a story and you start laughing. But you aren't laughing because what she said is funny, but because she has used that word again. And she's still too young to tell her that we do not call a cupcake spooky. You watch her little cheeks fill and the plump of her belly shake, believing she has told a joke. And you love that she's still young enough to believe this is the only reason why an adult would be laughing. For a moment you wait and watch her. You wonder how so much feeling can be contained in such a tiny thing. You smile, that secret smile. I know that smile is the one that says you were out last night and you flirted and she looked at you and said, I always knew we would do this. She took your hand and she held it. And nothing more happened. And you didn't want anything more to happen. You remember the hot feel of her hand while she rubbed yours in the clammy GAA club. You wake the next morning and you smile. That secret smile. I know that smile. It's the one that says you said something you shouldn't have. And you know you should not have said it. But you knew it would make me laugh. And it did. I did. You smile. That secret smile. I know that smile. It's the one that says I love you. It's the one that says, I know you hate this thing about yourself and you wish you were not so, but I love it about you and I will love it for you. And every time you do this, I will smile the secret smile. I know that smile. It's the one that says, this is a funeral and we shouldn't laugh, but he got your name wrong and he's known you 20 years and you know that it's just nerves, but you're feeling the nerves too. And sometimes there's nothing funnier than a funeral. You look at your friend and you repeat her name, Mary. You smile, that secret smile. I know that smile. It's the one that says, I'm so full of love and I fear that if I let you really see this, you would consider me a fool. I try not to let it all spill over, the exuberance and gush upon your lap. History has taught me to be wary of publishing feeling at such an early date. But I look at you and see my future self or future selves. And though I curb the words, you know what has been said when I smile at you instead and you return that secret smile. The secret language of smiles there from Bridget O'D. This week's keyword, future selves, has prompted all of our contributors in different ways. We're a few weeks past the New Year's resolutions. Those plans for how we want to shape our year and ourselves are well underway by now. Some people are great at knowing where they want to be in one or even five years full of intentions and plans about how to become the future self they want to be. I'm not great at making promises too far ahead, 
but when I go online, the internet seems to have an inkling as to what I should or could be doing. The algorithm serves me content with that in mind, and it definitely aims to shape my buying habits and what I consume. In the first week of January this year, writer Belinda McKeown sat with her children and the sounds of them playing here is mixed with targeted ads from social media. This is How To Be. After living in our house for 18 months, my facial skin feels energized immediately. One. My facial skin feels energized immediately. One. It takes dinosaurs away. It takes dinosaurs away. It takes dinosaurs away. All of these delicious recipes and more in your... Yep. Look at this. I'm just now starting, and this is the only option you should consider. Fix your teeth in as little as four to six months. Secret to keeping your hair long and silky. You can install these lights just about anywhere. It is so sleek and fancy. Perfectly, right underneath my cap. Takes dinosaurs away. Takes dinosaurs away. It's practical, it's learnable, and it doesn't it feels very familiar, doesn't it? That sort of fractured attention, sounds and demands from many different sources. This episode takes a turn for the speculative now. We have two pieces that propel us into a future time. First, Nuala Roach's fiction is set in the near future. A woman describes the origins of her post-digital world, where the remnants of our lives and stories become hearsay and turn to dust. Is it an audio diary entry, a witness statement, or perhaps a warning? Time, the past, place, here. Back then, bit by bit, bite by bite, the world of technology stalled. Inside data centers, racks of gray servers blinked intermittently then flatlined. Network nodes petered out and a rash of blue screens spread over the island. When hospitals could do no more and their pharmacies had nothing to dispense, the wards thinned out. The remaining patients killed time by mixing up exotically flavoured electrolyte cocktails and charting their vital signs on the hour. A heavily bearded young man spent his days scoring X's through all the pages of each patient file marked deceased. Abandoned houses were burned as a precautionary measure, but more often as a talisman against the dark, fulfilling a communal desire for light, for some brightness to extinguish the images of bodies in ditches, improvised road barriers and self-imposed quarantines. Kinship ties were severed. A city emptied itself into the black water. Later, there were burials and cremations, ceremonies of sorts. Time, 
the near future, place here. In darkness, I will recall the city from where I had come, the rooms of my family's red bricked house, the neighborhood of vacant-eyed adults increasingly wary of one another. Exiled and far from home, children will conjure vignettes of horror about the city, stories to illustrate the capacity of humans to visit horror upon one another. I will bring the tales to the foster mother, but she will interrupt me, putting a finger to my lips, tust, tust, tust. The word is a charm, a spell, tust, a whisper, a shushing on the wind, let them be, let them be. Time, the future, place, here. If you believe everything you hear, you believe all manner of codswallop. Women, like me, with rifles slid down our trousers, gallybanders up our sleeves, bruised ankles on account of the pistols sewed into our hems. Seemingly, we darned ciphers into our knickers, wore necklaces of typewriter keys that jangled, impressing nonsense words on our tits. Fizpika, Wizra. If you believe everything you hear, you believe that. Yeah, we organised the protests, took it to the streets. It was too late. Most people had complied, given it up to GovCloud. Uploaded fingerprints, histories, bloods, blueprints, codes, cures and prayers. We heard the data was to be moved offshore, off the island. So we hatched a plan. Started raiding data stores, printing hard copies, backing up archives. But then the virus hit. The island powered down. And that was that. The end of digital. No one bothers with us now. They say our stories are made up, that we're suffering the synaptic gaps. But see here, right here, the word that made our knowledge disappear. T-U-S-T, tust, silence. Fingers to lips, hands over ears, tust. Give up your token, they said, but the gaps will be filled one way or another. Better the evidence than rumour, than speculation, than fictions. The last of the audio tape will pass through the reel-to-reel player. On a sheet of paper under the take-up reel, flakes of iron oxide will pile up, little mountains of glittering brown dust. The tape will shed its skin. I will lift the paper, hold it aloft like an offering, and purse my lips together. (sighs) The story dust will disappear. In the future, I will be an archaeologist of the digital age. Story dust by Nuala Roach there gives us a sense of a post-digital time. Our second piece of future thinking audio fiction explores how the physical human body might evolve as we become more entangled with technology. In this piece, humans have lost the limbs they no longer use. Writer Jennifer Redmond calls this a de-limbed technospine. Humanity shrugs off obsolete and troublesome limbs. 
This is taken to extreme, as the speaker in lumbar energumen no longer has a spine. They're left with just their central nervous system, as they exist as a disembodied they. This work is a collaboration with words by Jennifer Redmond and sound design by Ivan Aiken. It could be the pink lights in here, or the heat, or the constant thump of the artificial heartbeat. But the pain is getting worse. It is distracting her from the work. Lena knows that she must address it, but she prevaricates, hoping that it will abate, but it won't. She massages her temples. This happens regularly and every time the experience becomes progressively more distressing. Today there are little black spots and lightning flashes that cloud her vision. A new development is a gentle, high-pitched humming in her ears. She can hardly see the biobags or concentrate on the settings. So many lives are at stake. She knows that she must apply to reset. She is starting to panic. An ancient anxiety that is ingrained and buried. An antique emotion that defies reason. Yes, sapiens still value reason. Under the current world view, no one should feel pain. This episodic torture is unmentionable. She dare not admit it. She settles her bulk into the space and she tries to conjure the Kundalini. Such transcendental practices are forbidden, even as a prophylactic measure. She is aware of the dangers, but she is frantic. She tenses and relaxes and internally chants the primal sounds. Moving is problematic. Hominids have not moved much for generations now. They have prosthetic limbs. The only skeletal traces left are armlets and a truncated spine. These limbs are traitors to her body. They are retrofitted with quizzling intelligences. The spine howls at the deficit. Severe migraine is commonplace but never disclosed. There are just moments before the correction is applied. She knows this, and she waits, miserably, expectant. The air is filled with trillions of surveillance motes that shadow every motion of her being. She can see them dancing in the hollow monitor light. She can feel the lenses taking her in. She slips off into her interior. She becomes aware of being roughly manoeuvred onto a trolley. Bright lights, surgeon bot, the uncomfortable whirring and rummaging in her skull. Can't move. There are chemical ligatures. Mercifully, the procedure is momentary. Back to the desk immediately. No screens, no memory, no pain. Her stomach hurts. The stomach shouldn't hurt. There are no longer primitive intestinal digestive tracts. Old terrors seep to the surface and play there with new fears. 
Lena knows that she cannot reveal her predicament, but the air is thick with the fog of tiny spectators. Nothing may be concealed. Something is oozing from somewhere. This cannot be normal. In her mouth there are white eruptions. More pain here, but bearable. Something soft and spiky is emerging from her skin. She likes how it looks, how it feels. But she apprehends the consequences. They leave her for much longer than she thinks that they will. She hopes that this time the reset will be final, that there will be no return. She closes her eyes. In her mind, she is floating, formless, timeless, invalid, irreplaceable. She is ready, more than ready, to leap into the unbound. from the future to moments in the past that shape who we are. In Viviana Fiorentina's poem, a woman pulls apart an orange and three generations become linked. The orange is read by Helen Morehouse. The night my grandmother died, my mum peeled the zest of an orange. 3 a.m. in the dim kitchen light with a knife, she cut the zest of an orange. She gently tore off the pith of the fruit, bent like a craftsman over her table. Stood at the door, I caught a glimpse of the white chest of an orange. A luminous lining, piece by piece I heard the sound of its detachment. The papery membrane departing the juicy nest of an orange. In the glow of the lamplight, thousands of aromatic droplets swelled and expanded in the air. A moment grafted in tears and the breast of an orange. A sour, aromatic smell, mixed with the smell of the fish she cooked for dinner. I came close to her, my sixteen merged with her forty-nine in the clefts of an orange. A scrap where I'm not yet born and she's not yet come to light. Both of us dormant and protected, enclosed in the shell, compressed in an orange. We divided the fruit, quenched our thirst, my name a whisper of her voice. 3 a.m., the juice slid down our warm throats, our eyes misted, and so the orange. Finally tonight in our show about future selves, Jodie O'Neill's poem Who asks questions about what comes next. Who will watch over me when you're gone? Who will show me how to hold my head up high, even when I am crumbling inside? Who? Who will calm me in the night when I wake up in a cold sweat? Who will sit beside me, hold me, repeating the whispered mantra, It's okay, you're alright, it was only a dream. It's okay, you're alright, it was only a dream. It's okay. You're all right. It was only a... Who? Who will wipe the vomit from my mouth and brush the hair out of my eyes and wrap me up 
feed me as if it were nothing. Who? Who will remember me when you are gone? Who will retell my stories as if they were fables? Who will hold me at the center of the web of their being? Who will catch me when I fall? Who will eradicate the bitter taste of failure with a word? Who will really know me when you are gone? And I would ask you not to go. And I would entreat you to stay. And I would fall at your feet like a tantruming child and grasp your ankles and scream, don't go. And I would make a fool of myself, crying out before the nation if I thought it would do something. If I thought I could make you stay. But I cannot. So I wipe the vomit from your mouth. And I brush the hair out of your eyes. And as I do, I can see, feel, hear, touch, taste, smell the restlessness in you now. And I draw myself deep inside myself, present the hardest and coldest of exteriors, the sharpest of angles, locking my longing inside. Nobody will find me when you are gone. Thanks to all the writers and makers who wrote and recorded for this episode. Next week is our last in this series of keywords, and it's all about the sea. This series is supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sound and Vision Scheme.